Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with our third installment of September. Are you having a good time so far? Well, I was. <laughs> okay, I was until this movie literally put me in such an awful mood. But I think talking about it will be really essential to my healing. So let's see who's in it. Okay, who is in this? Returning again is Amanda Young, played by Shawnee Smith. And Detective Carey, played by Dina Meyer. And now we have some new characters. Some that are seen centrally and some that are seen for about two seconds. But they become important eventually. <laughs> so of the most important is the character of Lynn Denlin. She is played by Bahar Sumek. She is an Iranian actress known primarily for this film, the movie Crash, and various TV roles. We have Corbett, who is played by Neve Wilson. She's in another Saw film, but she is best known for her roles in Degrassi and Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. Do you know about this? I have heard of it. I have never seen it. It's so gay. And that's why oh. I included it, because Neve plays queer characters often in her adult career. She's a queer character in Degrassi, and she is a queer character in Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies. I watched some of Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, <laughs> but TikTok filled me in on the parts that I missed because I'm on lesbian TikTok, obviously. Then we have Danica, who is played by Deborah Lynn McCabe, and a very brief appearance of Jill Tuck, played by Betsy Russell. She is known for other Saw franchise films, a movie called Cheerleader Camp, Camp Fear, various 80s TV and movie roles, and she is also a certified hypnotist and life coach with a master's in spiritual psychology. I felt the need to include all of those things. I mean, those are all her accolades. We got to get them out there. Yeah, exactly. She plays a very brief role in Saw 3, but plays a pivotal role in Saw's 4, 5, 6, and onward. Incredible. So going into some pre-plot trivia... This is directed again by Darren Lynn Bowsman, who is known for Saw 2, Saw 4, and Spiral. The screenplay is by Lee Winnell, and the story is by him and James Wan. A fun trivia fact, 1,000 special posters were made and sold for $20 each in support of this film and the American Red Cross. Ooh, X marks the spot. Tobin Bell donated two vials of his own blood to be dumped into the red ink printed on the posters, and all 1,000 posters were then printed with that ink and sold. The first print was put up for auction and signed by the entire cast and crew, and all proceeds from both sales went to the American Red Cross. Oh my gosh. So there are posters out there that have Tobin Bell's blood in it. Ew, that's so specific. But it reminds me of Eli Roth and the Green Inferno thing, where he did this huge ass fundraiser for the Amazon rainforest after the release of the Green Inferno. So it's like philanthropy meets sawing limbs off. That's amazing. Nice. Also, Saw 3 was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Horror Film, but lost to <gasps> The Descent. Oof. I mean, That's it's a tough the year. Descent. It's the I Descent. Mean, it's The Descent. Wow. It was also nominated for Choice Movie Horror Thriller at the Teen Choice Awards, but lost to Disturbia, which I would love for us to cover. Yeah, I feel like, well, whenever I hear the word Disturbia, I think of that Rihanna song. That's right. And I know there's a movie, but I don't know anything about it. Like, I literally don't know anything about it. It's like Shia LaBeouf is on house arrest, but then thinks he sees his neighbor getting murdered and thinks that his neighbor's a serial killer. But because he's on house arrest, he can't really help because his ankle monitor is going to go off. Okay, so maybe I do actually know. I do kind of remember him being in this movie and this being like a popular culture moment. I remember it being like akin to When a Stranger Calls as like a big sleepover movie. Mm. You know what I mean? I feel Mm -hmm. like that's its own genre is like teen sleepover movie (laughs) horror movie and Disturbia is like really high up on there. But did you have to call your mom and tell her to pick you up from the sleepover after watching Probably not. No, you didn't, but I probably would have. So let's get into it. Okay. So we start with our opening scene. Guess where we are? (laughs) We're back in that fucked up bathroom. (laughs) And guess who's there? Detective Eric Matthews from Saw 2. And guess what he's yelling? You fucking bitch. You fucking bitch. (laughs) (laughs) This man's got a potty mouth. Mm -hmm. He's in a bathroom. He's got a potty mouth. That's right. And no time has passed. We are picking up right where we left off. He is trying to look around the bathroom, get his bearings. He uses his shoe to get his gun closer, but he realizes that it's out of bullets. I don't know what he would have done with that. Killed himself, probably. I don't know. He seems like he's still full of a passion for life at this point, at least to see his son. Because remember, he still thinks his son is 
alive. And probably in the house very near to him. No bullets in the gun. He goes for the flashlight nearby and gets it and uses it to look around the room. That's where we see again the severed and decomposing foot of Dr. Gordon, Adam's decomposing body. But he also sees a saw. He grabs it and tries to saw through his chains, but he shortly realizes that that is not a good use of his time. It's never going to work. And of course, thinking back to the sawed off foot, he considers sawing off his own foot to get out of his chains, but he decides to use a piece of a toilet seat to break his foot, which honestly is like, I don't know which is worse. Yeah, because he literally uses the lid of the toilet bowl to eviscerate his foot and then break his ankle manually to slip it through the shackle. But like, what's worse, a pulp of a foot or no foot at all? I don't know. He makes his choice. And like Shay says, he gets it out of the shackle and he starts to try to limp away. I was like, to his credit, this man is wasting no time. No, he's not. Especially given no instructions. He's like, I'll figure this out myself. So meanwhile, we leave him and we are at a different house with a SWAT team that invades it and finds another jigsaw crime scene. So this is starting to become a very characteristic way to start these Saul movies. It's a classroom. Oh, that's right. It's not a house. It's a classroom. With a door that's welded shut. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's... She's <laughs> about to make a political comment about maybe we should get doors that weld shut in maybe. an emergency in our public schools these days. We say this as educators. We <laughs> don't have an informed opinion. Shut up. <laughs> Honestly, I would like a big heavy metal door in my classroom. I don't know. <laughs> it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we are in a classroom and we come across a very troubling scene. Somebody is dead, and he was killed when a bomb went off. A nail bomb. A nail bomb. A cherry bomb. No. Um, (laughs) This is where we are reintroduced to Detective Riggs, or Rig. I don't know which one it is. I'll call him Riggs. Because if I say Rig, it makes it seem like he's rigging a trap, and this man is innocent. So he (laughs) unmasks and says, we got to call Carrie. So they bring Carrie on the scene, and she immediately is like, is it Eric? And Riggs like, we don't know. Because mm, he's in pieces. This man is in pieces. Yeah, there's not an identifying feature to be found. There's just a bunch of mutilated body parts all around. So as Carrie enters, we meet a new detective, Detective Hoffman, who affirms that it is not Detective Matthews. And we get a flashback of the trap with a man named Troy bound with chains and metal rings implanted in his skin, a la fish hooks in Hellraiser. Uh, that's exactly what I said. It's giving Hellraiser. We meet Billy the Boy on TV again, and we learn that Troy is a repeat offender in jail. He's a drug addict, and he feels more comfortable in chains than in freedom. So Jigsaw wants to see how far he will go to break those chains once and for all. A nail bomb is set for a minute and 30 seconds, and his task is to break himself from these rings that are implanted into his skin. And these rings are thick. There are some that are through his Achilles tendon. There's one that's through his jaw. There's some that are through, like, the meat in his shoulder. It does not look like an easy feat. The one through his jaw is, like... In his jaw. It's, like, in his jaw. All the other ones, yeah, skin and tendon, but that one... He doesn't get through all of his chains or at least stop the timer. And we never see him even try to get the one in his jaw out. How would you even do that? Can you even do that? Like through your bone with your own strength? I mean, he's a big guy. He's a strong guy. But like, could you even do that? Well, we come to find out that this game wasn't necessarily meant to be winnable. Carrie smartly points out, well, how did you get into this room? And Rig said we had to weld through it. And she's like, well, why would it be welded shut if the instructions on the tape said that he could walk out the door after the minute 30 was up if he did end up freeing himself? Essentially saying that the trap was rigged mm-hmm. and it was not meant to be winnable, which is very opposite to what we've seen so far. The game seemed to be, when I say fair, <laughs> not necessarily fair, but they seem to have a clear path outwards but this one even if he did what he was asked would not have lived which is a big hole in jigsaw's whole redemption arc theory they are able to get the tape and there is a scene transition to carrie you can tell she's haunted by visions of eric she still feels very guilty over eric being missing so she's studying troy's tape and the crime scene photos and notices that once the tape is over There's a continuation of a point of view that looks like it's peering out from beyond a closet door, which I'm like, what technology 
Like, it's a VHS tape that she is watching. But all of a sudden, it cuts to a live feed of someone filming her from inside her own closet. I'm like, what is the technology that's working here? Well, maybe that's what it is. It cuts to, is it like a different channel? Like, does somebody have the remote and they somehow, like, rigged a channel to be a live feed? I don't, but like... I don't know. VHSs don't work that way. Yeah, but I don't think it's the VHS anymore. It, like, cuts away from the VHS to some kind of... What even broadcast? Yeah. I was like, what is the old term for live stream? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So she sees that she is being watched from the inside of the closet. And so she approaches the closet after shooting it the fuck up, which I'm like, my kind of girl. She doesn't that waste is, any fucking time. I respect the shit out of her. When she approaches the closet, she tries to take a look, but she's ambushed from behind by somebody in a pig mask. And she wakes up in a jigsaw trap. She is suspended in the air with a device attached to her ribs. The tape goes on to say that up until now, she has spent her life among the dead, piecing together their final moments. And she's good at this because she's dead on the inside. She identifies with a corpse more than she does with a human being. Her family's dead and maybe she wants to go and join them. The device she's wearing is hooked to her rib cage. And by the time the tape is finished, she'll have one minute to find her way out. At the end of the minute, she knows what's going to happen to her. There is a key to unlock her harness, and it's right in front of you. All she has to do is reach in and take it. But she has to do it quickly because the key is in acid. And if she doesn't get it quickly enough, the key will dissolve. We see her struggling to dip her hand inside this beaker of acid, which is obviously corroding her skin off and is very painful. But eventually, she's able to get the key and unlock the device. But the trap doesn't budge. Mm-mm. It's rigged. And as she screams and sobs, we see a silhouette of a woman walking into the room. Carrie says, it's you. Trap goes off, tearing Carrie's ribs away from her body, and she dies. What a freaking disappointment. Rip to a real one. I wasn't ready to see Carrie go. I know. She was like the hottest on Jigsaw's trail, which is why I think she died. Mm, Especially at the hands of who she dies by. Mm -hmm. I mean, her trap is badass, though. Like, the imagery of it. Yeah. It kind of makes me think of the Silence of the Lambs. Like, remember when that guy is, like, suspended from the ceiling? Yes. There's something about it. Why the ribs? Like, why for that detective doesn't make sense? Midsummer too. With the guy who's hanging from the ceiling and his lungs keep getting inflated. Yes. What is that, like, the oxygen, breathing life into something? I don't know. Like, I'm just kind of, like, interested in the symbolism behind that. Like, usually, I feel like with saw traps, sometimes it seems like there's a connection between the trap and the person that's in the trap. I'm thinking about the pit of needles. I'm thinking about, I don't know, maybe there really isn't. (laughs) Maybe that's the only one. I don't know. But I guess I was hoping for something for Carrie that... I guess had more of a correlation, but maybe it makes sense that there's not a correlation and we'll find out more about that later. But also, we see no evidence that she doesn't appreciate her life. That's a thing too. Like her rationale is so stretched. You spend your life helping other people? Like, fuck you. What are you saying? Like, she's fine. Which we come to find out based on who kills her, why it is as flawed. Because Carrie didn't deserve to be tested. Yeah, she's got a dead family. Is that her fault? She has a dead family and does her job. Yeah. Like, that's not not appreciating her no, life. No, I agree 100%. She seems like, I mean, from all that we've seen from her, she seems like she takes her job very seriously. Even though she has a soft spot for Eric Matthews, it doesn't seem like she engages in the same kind of corruption that he does. And again, you could argue about if you're in the system, you're in the system, who knows. But again, we are just never supposed to look at her character in any other way other than she's doing her job. She's good at it. She's hot on the trail. And I can't believe, I really was so surprised she was taken from us so soon. The only thing I could see from Jigsaw's Christian ass rationale is that she got involved <laughs> with a married man. Oh, but that's not on the tape. No. That's not on the tape. It's not. Okay. So Carrie is dead, unfortunately. But speaking of women who don't deserve the situations that they're in. <laughs> yeah, anyway. We cut to a new character named Lynn. There is a man sitting in bed with his arms crossed being pouty and a woman sitting on the edge of the bed facing away from him. She's like, I got to go to work at the hospital. And he huffs and puffs about it. We can tell there's a lot of tension. He's like, can we just talk? Everything's wrong with us. Like, can we just talk? And she's like, well, what do you want from me? And he says, a divorce. A lot of tension here, but she just ends up up and leaving and arrives at the hospital where she works. There's a lot of hustle and bustle in the emergency room. 
There are nurses paging her as she sleepily sits in the locker room. But finally, once she gets on the scene, she takes a rogue approach on a procedure, but ends up saving a kid that's on the table. So she's good at her job, but she goes about it in an unorthodox way. A nurse calls her out for not being herself, pretty much tells her to check herself before she wrecks herself. Lynn goes about her business, goes back to the locker room, goes to take some pills, but decides not to. We don't necessarily know what the context of this is. But as she packs up to leave, she's locked in the locker room and attacked by a pig mask. And I wrote, say it with me, who works in this hospital? (laughs) Uh, Who? Who works in this hospital? You can't kidnap a surgeon (laughs) from a locker room. Especially wearing a pig mask and a black and red silk robe. No one's not going to see that. How do you Mm -mm. get this body out of here? I mean, we saw on Talk to Me, all you really need to do is put somebody in a wheelchair and people, I guess, don't (laughs) fucking stop you. But like, who works here? You're telling me you're the only person in this locker room? That's probably like a once in a lifetime anomaly. Yeah, for real. Yeah, justice to these hospitals. Let's get real with these hospitals, okay? Let's show the amount of people who work in these hospitals. I would like to see a movie director take a hustling, bustling hospital seriously for once. Anyway, we follow Pig Mask's perspective as the mask arrives back at a warehouse and turns on the power. We see a groggy, bound Lynn start to wake up. And then the Pig Mask reveals herself to be Amanda. She holds a knife to Lynn and asks if she'll behave before taking her to see Jigsaw, a.k.a. John. Oh, we have Shay fanning herself over there. You like this scene? I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay. I was like, do you want to tell us about a formative experience? This is formative experience. Because first of all, Amanda's haircut is great. She's gotten her hair back. She's not. Oh, yeah. It's, she looks so much better. She's not doing the Courtney Cox and Scream 3, <laughs> where it's like you just have to look horrible, right? Like she's she her hair has grown into her head. She has a knife and she's shushing Lynn with the knife, asking if she's going to behave. And I'm just like, I'm learning about myself today. And it's just cute, too, because like Amanda goes to like roll Lynn in this wheelchair. And she's like, did you notice her like kicking her feet? rolls the wheelchair and then she like lifts her feet off and like kicks them in the air very childishly like she's having so much fun with this she is and obviously we can see such a marked change in her confidence i mean because we don't see her having to act in this movie like she's not an accomplice in a salt trap so we get to see her feeling comfortable at ease kicking her little feet because she is an obvious accomplice now she doesn't have to pretend in front of a room of people that she's so scared She's wearing the red crop top with a diving V. Her tummy's out. Oh, my Shawnee God, Smith yeah. looks great. Like, I'm just like, this is wonderful. I love this. I'm having so much fun. But Lynn is not having fun. No, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Lynn. Because she's rolled into a room with a very sickly John Kramer in a hospital bed. He's like, I remember you, but you don't remember me. And throws his file on her lap where Lynn examines it and is like, I remember you. There's no preventative treatment for what you have. And John's like, I remember you giving me this diagnosis as cold as you are right now. Tell me how long I have left to live. And she's just like, not long because he has an inoperable brain tumor. So before long, Amanda straps some sort of collar device around Lynn's neck and quickly informs her that this device now locked around your neck is an explosive collar that is connected to John's heart rate. If his heart stops beating, aka if he dies, or if you leave this facility and go out of range, the collar will explode and you will die. So you have to keep John alive at least until the current test subject finishes, which is when we learn that they are about to embark on another saw trap excursion, observation of somebody else in a different area, warehouse. He also gives a little bit of a peek into why she specifically is being chosen. He says, death is a surprise party, unless, of course, you're already dead on the inside. You're the type of person who swallows antidepressants to hide pain and the type of person who turns her back on her husband and who neglects her child, who has every possible advantage in life but chooses not to advance. Baby, don't talk about my antidepressants that way. No. (laughs) It's just you need some happy pills. That's fine. (laughs) It's a tool, John. It's a tool. (laughs) But we close in on a man waking up in a wooden box suspended in the air where he finds a tape. This man's name is Jeff. 
The tape says that over the years, he has become a shell of his former self, consumed with hatred and vengeance. Vengeance specifically against... The tape says a drunk driver that killed his son, but there's no evidence that he was drunk. Like, if you see yeah. the thing later, the tape says that it was a drunk driver. So we're just going to go with that. But today, he's going to be the one that's put on trial. To escape from where he is, he's going to have to face a series of tests. But with each one, he has the chance to forgive. And once he completes the test, he'll come face to face with the man responsible for the loss of his son, Dylan. He has to get through the tests in two hours. Otherwise, the doors will lock and this place will become his tomb. Let the games begin. So Jeff eventually kicks his way out of the box. And as he's briefly disoriented on the ground, there's a flashback to Jeff drunkenly holding a gun to the mirror, reciting what he would say to the man who killed his son, Dylan. You can tell that this man is obsessive. He just wants revenge. He's been engulfed in this grief. He notices that one of his son's stuffed animals is missing from his room, and he confronts his daughter, Corbett, who was sleeping with it because she wanted comfort, but he very coldly takes it away from her, saying, like, you know not to touch his things. So obviously, this family is very broken. She's definitely feeling neglected. Jeff is found sitting in Dylan's room with one of his t-shirts when his daughter joins him and apologizes and says that she has to go get ready for school. But as Jeff stands to help her, it reveals that a gun was sitting next to him under the t-shirt. So perhaps he was thinking about using it on Mm -hmm. himself. So Jeff, in real time, stands up, stumbles around, and finds a box with a note telling him to open the door with a ripped photo of him and a key. Meanwhile, Amanda is looking on as Lynn tends to John. Lynn tells Amanda that John needs to go to a hospital, but I wrote, Amanda rages. She is not about to let John out of her sight, and she tells Lynn that she is not a good listener. If he dies, she dies. Okay, we have some fanning going on. (laughs) Um, She is very assertive. And John reminds Amanda that threatening Lynn is against the rules, so he kind of has to keep Amanda in check as well. But then he begins to have a seizure. They rush to restabilize him, which they do. But it's a scary moment because none of the drugs that Lynn is looking for are available. And when she's asking Amanda questions, Amanda doesn't know enough about what's on hand to even help her find things that might be there that she's unaware of. So after this seizure, Lynn is like, are you convinced yet? Amanda's like, yes, but... This surgery that you're talking about, it's going to have to happen here. Let me know what you need and I will get the supplies and then you can carry it out. Okay, we're going to have a surgery in a warehouse. And it's an intense surgery where Lynn will have to go in and relieve pressure in John's brain. She says something about needing a drill, a saw. It's a whole mess and obviously very tense because if this does not go well, Lynn is dead. Back to Jeff, we find him in a hallway with flickering lights with a door that says, face your fears. He opens the door and it's a walk-in freezer with a naked lady inside. This was really jarring. Yeah. Because this is the first Saw movie where I really think nudity is present. So fun fact, actually, you remember in Saw 1 where the guy was covered in a flammable substance and wandering around the room for the combination to his key carrying a candle? It was like a very quick trap. Do you remember that? He's vaguely. He's nude. Okay, he's nude. Because people were like, this is sexual. And they're like, this is actually the second Saw film to include nudity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I read a fact online that they were gonna put her in a t-shirt, but they thought that spraying the water on her over her breasts would make it more sexual than her (sighs) actually being naked. That's actually really interesting. Where it's like the idea of a wet t-shirt contest is more sexual than a woman just being skin and bone and susceptible to freezing because she has no protective layer on. That's something I've heard before about the suggestion of what's underneath is more erotic yes. than just the naked body itself. I mean, because that's the thing. Actress has a great form, but that's not what necessarily we're focused on. Like, no, I don't take it as like sexual. I don't even think Jeff perceives it as sexual. It's just cruel because it is below freezing in the freezer and she's being sprayed with water consistently. Oh, it's awful. It's awful. So he finds a tape, listens to the tape as she's begging to be let go. She perceives Jeff as her captor. The tape tells him, welcome to your first test. For the past three years, you've cursed the name of all you thought were responsible for the death of your son. Before you, you find a woman chained in place. This will prevent her from running, much like she did on the day your son was hit. 
Oof. Her name is Danica Scott. She was the only witness present at the scene of your son's untimely demise. If it was not for her own cowardice, she would have brought your son's killer to justice. But now it is you who can bring her to justice. You can grant her the gift of life before she freezes to death. Behind the pipes of this wall, you will find a key to free her and bring you one step closer to the man responsible for the loss of your child. Will you forgive her or won't you make your choice? Water is spraying on her as the tape plays, making this all the more unbearable. She's like, I didn't do anything. He's like, you're right. You didn't do anything. So like you could tell he's very much trapped in this narrative that she made an active choice not to bring this guy who killed his son to justice. He's very unmoved by this. She eventually says, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. I'm human just like your son was. Okay, just look at me. And this causes him to move a little bit. He tries to get the pipe, ends up freezer burning part of his own cheek off, trying to reach for the key. Yeah. But by that time, she is already fully encased in ice and he can't unlock her restraints because they're frozen over. It's too little too late. She has died. Cue a theme of the movie where Jeff just takes fucking forever to do everything. He is very slow. And I will say, this is the first scene that he's really confronted with a person who played a pivotal role in his son's trial. Fine. Like, I think we can give him a little bit of a break this time around because he's just getting started with the game. But if you're thinking, all right, like, maybe this guy will get his shit together, you might be disappointed. (laughs) And that's the thing, he doesn't seem too impacted because he exits the freezer, finds another box with a note that says, one bullet will end it all with a torn picture of his son and a bullet in the box. So, okay, this man's finding things along the way. Meanwhile, these torn picture pieces go together like a puzzle. Mm -hmm. So like the picture of himself, the picture of his son, they're from the same original photograph. So we see Lynn preparing for surgery as Amanda is out getting the supplies that she requested. She's examining the reverse bear trap. She sees a phone and thinks about picking it up, but as she reaches for it, the reverse bear trap goes off, which is startling her and reveals that Amanda was watching her the entire time. Lynn tries to reason with Amanda that doing the surgery here isn't what's best for John, and Amanda's like, listen, I see you eyeing up all of these weapons and hands her an axe and stands with her hands up and her back to her and outlines all the ways that Lynn could kill her, but if she does, she's fucked. Kill me, John will rip out his heart monitor and your collar will explode. Try to leave, your collar is going to detonate. If you try to take the collar off yourself, it's probably going to detonate. <laughs> you can try to do all the things you're thinking of right now, but it's more costly for you than it is for me. So take a swing at me and see what happens. And again, it's just like this dominance and this intelligence is so fucking cool. Because I remember talking about this in the Nightmare on Elm Street trilogy and the Hellraiser episode, that Hellraiser and Freddy were kind of a return to form of supervillains being incredibly intelligent. Mm. Where if you look at the duo of Jigsaw and Amanda, Amanda is 5'3". <laughs> you, don't re- you don't realize that in the movie, but she is a small and scrawny oh girl. Yeah, she looks like she's 5'11". No, they had to do some forced perspective because Bahar Sumek is like much taller than her. Oh, wow. So she had to do a lot to make herself look intimidating. And then fucking John Kramer is riddled with cancer. Like, what is the man doing? But it's the idea that they were able to plan things and anticipate the human mind to such a degree that you can try to overpower, but like, what's going to happen if you do? And granted, Pinhead does that, but he's also supernatural and he can do whatever the fuck he wants with a snap of a finger. I just love that these folks who otherwise in society are seen as very weak people are able to maintain this level of power over people who have advantages to them, but can't take advantage of the position they're in. I fucking love it. Down the hallway of the warehouse, I wrote, John is doing some arts and crafts. Craft time with Kramer. (laughs) Yes. He's touching up Billy the Puppet's spiral paint. (laughs) So nice. But he's also having flashbacks about Amanda's trap, remembering her escape, what she had to go through to get it. So there's a confrontation after Amanda passes the test where he is in her apartment or something and tells her not to be afraid and that her life just begun. This is the beginning of the grooming of taking her in as an accomplice. He pursued her. Yes. That's what it seems like. Okay. Because she was his sole survivor at that point of any of his traps. Like, she's the only one who was willing to test things. But also, and everybody points this out, Amanda had to do nothing to win her trap. She had to kill a man. She had to kill a man, but she did not have to, like, risk any personal injury to win her trap. She just had to sort through a paralyzed man for a key. (sighs) 
I read somewhere that this guy is her boyfriend or was her boyfriend, but I don't remember that ever being said in the first movie and I did not see anything about it in two and three. So I'm wondering if that's even true. No, that's the thing. I've heard it referenced that way, but the tape very much says the stomach of your dead cellmate. Yes. It doesn't say, and maybe it's revealed in a later movie that she was romantically involved with the guy, but I don't remember it being apparent at least in these first three movies. So not to say that there wasn't emotional weight to it, and not to say that there isn't emotional weight to killing somebody else, but there was not the level of self-sacrifice that is involved in any of the rest of these traps that we've seen so far. Agreed. Especially if it is her cellmate and he's a stranger. I feel like if there was like the added burden of of her knowing this man, like, I think it could have been like a saw trap all its own. But you're right. It's no taking a scalpel to your own eye to get the key out from behind. Do you know what I mean? No. <laughs> like, it's night and day. And I think that Amanda is beginning to crack because as she sits and updates John that Jeff made it through the freezer room and that Jeff tried to save Danica, she starts crying. She says, I can't do this. She starts breaking down. He's like, there's some things I need you to do for me. Look for an envelope with my name on it in his desk. Trust me that you're stronger now and that I believe in you. Okay. Like she's cracking, but he's trying to keep her upwards. Jeff now wanders toward the end of a hallway and sees Billy the boy falling off his bike. And this entire time, I've seen this movie many times and I never realized the significance of that up until now. That it was meant to mimic the way his son was killed? Yeah, I never noticed. Oh, shit. That's the first thing I noticed about it. I'm so surprised I didn't. Like, I don't know if I've always just kind of been zoning out, but like the (laughs) fact that Billy was like falling off of his bike. Oh, yeah, because I know you like to watch the horror movies when you're like doing the dishes. Yeah, (laughs) I'm folding laundry. Falling asleep. Yeah, exactly. It's just a comforting (laughs) How would you notice? How would I know? I'm not not picking up on the details. It's just my background noise. But yeah, I mean, talk about mean-spirited. He finds another door that says, time to let go. He opens it and then immediately gets locked in. Which, uh, didn't he get locked in the freezer too? It's a pattern. This guy is getting locked in these rooms. But he hears a man yelling for help. He looks up and sees a tape recorder that's dangling over this empty metal vat. And as he climbs the steps of the vat to get to the tape... He looks down inside and sees a man who is like strapped to the bottom of this empty vat with a chain around his neck and a lock. So he plays the recording. Do you have the noise? Do you have do you have the noise? I say, <laughs> I do have the noise. There's also like I'm gonna give credit to the Saw Wiki because they have an entire section on the Saw Wiki of just the recordings of the tapes. That's incredible. That like makes it so I did not have to type what the content of all of these tapes were. I could just copy and paste what they were, which was <laughs> amazing. But the tape essentially tells Jeff that the man who is bound at the bottom of this vat was the judge presiding over the case of his son, Dylan. And this judge is the one that handed down a very light sentence for the man that killed him. Now, Jeff has the power to sentence his soul straight to hell, or he could forgive him. The key to free him is hidden inside of his son's possessions, possessions that he has clung onto for far too long. If he flips the switch on the incinerator, the fire will cleanse him of his obsession and provide him the key to free the man. It's his choice whether he chooses to forgive or not. We are given a cube that has all of Dylan's stuffed animals in it, and he has to choose to set them on fire to retrieve the key or let the man drown. Because what ends up happening is after the tape ends, pig carcasses are rolled out on a conveyor belt, dropped into a meat grinder, and the sludge of which funnels into this vat and starts pretty much waterboarding this man. But the level of the pig guts keeps rising to the point where if Jeff does nothing, the man will drown in the pig guts. This is, I think, an emotionally complex moment. A, obviously, this trap is very disturbing. The pig guts, the carcasses, the idea of drowning in that. And especially because these carcasses are also moldering. Like, they are spoiled. Two, one of the stuffed animals we had seen previously when Jeff went in and took it from his daughter, it's a little pig. And it's like just this juxtaposition of the pig stuffed animal and the idea of having to set those things on fire to get the key. And then, of course, these pig carcasses filling up this vat. And then, of course, like pig mask. The scene is very like pig symbolism heavy. But some during the plot trivia about the pig carcasses. 
The pig carcasses were made out of foam, rubber, and latex. However, the pig props were filled with real, live, disinfected maggots. Tobin Bell said that out of all the traps in the series, the pig vat is his favorite. <laughs> oh? There were real maggots? Uh-huh. Mm, you could not pay me Grubby. enough. <laughs> Are you for real? I mean, I'm sure the sludge, like, wasn't what it was, but, like, there were actual maggots <sighs> on the pig carcasses that were held there with honey, but they weren't, like, like, if they bit you or something, you weren't going to get infected. Like, they were disinfected maggots. Oh, my God. That's and that's Tobin Bell's favorite? Yeah, it is wow. Tobin Bell's favorite. What a guy. Tobin <laughs> Bell is so cute. I adore him. <laughs> so, the pigs come marching in. Jeff taunts the judge from the top, asking if he remembers Timothy Young, which, his name is Timothy Young, Amanda Young. There's never a connection made between the two. Also, Timothy Young is of different ethnicity than Amanda Young is, which, not to say they can't be related, but I'm like, why double the last name? Yeah, that is really interesting. But Timothy Young is the driver that killed Jeff's son and was only given six months. The judge tries to reason with him, saying, listen, we could extend his sentence. Don't become the killer that he is. Eventually, Jeff stands in front of the case of Dylan's toys, sets them on fire, and saves the judge at the very last minute. Next, we watch as Amanda watches Lynn set up her surgery station. Lynn explains that John, while he's going to get a local anesthetic, cannot receive a general anesthetic because he needs to be fully alert for the surgery to work. Amanda stares on very queasily as Lynn removes a flap of skin from John's skull. I wrote, no gloves, no anesthetic, no problem. Drills into John's skull to create four corners of a square and then uses a saw to take off a portion of his skull to relieve the swelling. Some more during the plot trivia. The film's most graphic scene, Jigsaw's brain surgery, remained completely uncut by the MPAA. The filmmakers argued that it was no different from what people would see in a true-to-life medical documentary on TV, earning it an R rating instead of the NC-17 that the MPAA wanted to give it. So apparently, it wasn't the rack that made, <laughs> which we'll find out later about the rack, but it wasn't that that made people want to rate it in NC-17. It was this brain surgery scene, and they literally had to go back and forth a million times and to be like, you could watch any medical documentary and see the same fucking thing. Wow. Don't make my movie in NC-17. Uh-huh. Which, there's nothing wrong with it being in NC-17, but when something is rated in NC-17, people over the age of 18 cannot buy tickets for somebody younger than 18 to go see the movie. Oh. You have to be 17 in order to be admitted into the theater. Whereas for an R-rated movie, if I'm 25 and my brother is 17, I could buy a ticket for him and he could go see Saw with me. You'd be a supervisor. Exactly. So I'd be a supervisor. Mm -hmm. So it would drastically impact the level wow. of people who could go see the movie. And I know back in, like, at least when I say back in the day, back in the day, people would just physically go and buy the movie tickets for their kids and send them in and not see the movie. Now they won't let you do that. It's mm. so fucking stupid. Like, you actually need a parental supervision. But way back when, you just needed an adult to buy the tickets for you, and then you could go in and not be supervised to see it. And that's what, like, everybody fucking did in high school. Mm. But, like, now- Not me. Not you, <laughs> but me. But in NC-17, you literally had to be 17 in order to go into the movie, which would severely hurt the amount of people that would go see it because who goes and sees horror movies on like opening night in like the early 2000s yeah. is teenagers, which I found was so interesting. That is, of all the things, the scene, I would have never guessed that it had such a pivotal role. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad they got what they wanted. And Lynn also gets what she wants. She is able to successfully do this surgery, relieve John Kramer's brain. Even though there's a moment it looks a little bit hairy, she tries to get him to move his hand and he seems to start spiraling, but they eventually stabilize him. And we can see like in the moment that he is starting to spiral that he's having these flashbacks of a woman in a sunny, grassy meadow. And as he comes to, it seems like he's still confused enough that he thinks Lynn is this woman in front of him. He tells Lynn that he loves her. But Amanda is looking on and sees that moment and gets really jealous. And the woman in those visions is Jill Tuck. That is Betsy Russell. We don't know about her very much in this movie. We just know that John was involved in a romantic relationship with her. That's all we see of her of this movie, but that is Jill Tuck, his wife. But again, he is confusing Lynn to be Jill in this moment. And yes, Amanda is pissed. So Amanda rushes out of the room and grabs her little sin bin filled with a bunch of sharp tools. <laughs> Not her sin her bin. Her sin bin that <laughs> we can assume are full of tools that she uses to self-harm. So big trigger warning on this because there's a lot of it. We get flashbacks to John Kramer with the most disgusting soul patch I've ever seen. <laughs> um, 
Same. I thought you thought he was so cute. He is. No, I'm saying like he's grandpa cute. He's not like old man cute. Yeah. Every grandpa has a soul patch sin to count. You know this man's supposed to be 52. What? This man's, his time of death, he's 52. No. We learned that in, we learned that in software. This man is much older than 52. Well, he dies at 52, just so we know. Aw. But he's not. <laughs> the, can- the cancer did him dirty. But we get flashbacks to John Kramer saying, you will give everything to me. Every cell in your body is that understood. She says yes. He says, the marks on your arms, they're from another life. We'll leave that life behind. When you go down that corridor, there is no turning back. Do you understand? Yes. Then start with this, go, and gives her some schematics or whatever. So it's obvious that Amanda has a very deep adoration for John, and she struggles with that in the present. We also get a flashback during this time of her abducting Adam, which is telling us that she's been involved the entire time. Yeah, so when they interrogated her in the first movie and asked her what she knew, she did know shit. But she very much acted like she did not. No! Ugh. This causes her to grab a very large blade, take her pants off, and cut herself on her inner thigh. In another flashback, we see that she is helping John set up the bathroom trap by strapping Adam into his shackles as John draws the X on the wall, wipes up fingerprints, and stages his own body, saying, it's time to start our game. Amanda leaves Adam in the tub and very haphazardly tosses the key onto his chest, which becomes important later. And in the present, she bandages herself as Lynn prepares for surgery. There's so much to unpack, which we will eventually. But like, this girl is involved. (laughs) She is involved. Again, I appreciate this franchise in that the last movie, you think you get the extent of which she's involved, but then this movie sheds even more light on the extent to which she's involved. So it's like every time you watch one of these movies, it's like you get more context either on something completely new or on something you thought you knew all about, but it turns out you just only got the tip of the iceberg. So yeah, Lynn is cleaning up after surgery. Amanda comes in and hugs John, and Lynn tells her not to touch him to avoid making it worse, but that seems to upset Amanda. She does not like being told what to do around John. She goes after Lynn, but then John stops Amanda and tells her to leave Lynn alone. He tells Lynn that Amanda is the closest thing he has to a connection, but that Amanda's emotion is her weakness. And this is where we get another flashback to Amanda entering the dingy bathroom after Dr. Gordon sawed off his own foot and shot Adam and left. It turns out Amanda suffocated Adam to death after he was shot. So he survived the initial shooting and Amanda killed him in what seems to be some sort of attempt at a, I want to loosely say a mercy Mercy killing. killing. Yeah. But again, showing, I think what you talked about last episode, Shay, the roots of like this deep traumatization that this ongoing process of being John Kramer's apprentice is having on her. She seems really confident in her role at the beginning of this movie. These flashbacks are kind of showing a different side of that story. And even in the present, as she's reliving this flashback, she's gripping a knife too hard and cutting herself on her palm. Exactly, yeah. Showing that she really hasn't let go of these coping mechanisms that we saw that she was having in the second movie, which supposedly led to her involvement in the nerve gas trap. So while Jigsaw thinks that she's reformed, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe not. And granted, he has a very bad rubric. So we're not going to be judging success of this man's rubric. No, we are not. (laughs) So back to Jeff and the judge. They find another door that says, here's your chance with another box. And in the box, there is a note that says, one step closer to revenge with a photo of his daughter. I'm so sorry. I have to interrupt you. Do you know that you just sounded like Yzma from The Emperor's New Groove? I try to. Okay, good. In the box, there's a flea, in a flea, in a box. Yeah, in a flea, in a box. <laughs> and I smash it with a hammer. Yeah, no, I <laughs> Jeff loads the gun with the bullet, and they break through the door to find Timothy Young on a crazy-ass trap. So the final tape says, if you're listening to this, that means the confrontation you so long dreamed of is finally unfolding in your head. He is a cipher, a symbol of your life changing, a symbol of death. I present him to you now as a simple human being. His name is Timothy Young. He's 27 and a medical student with a mother and father just like you, a man whose life changed the day your son died, the day he made a terrible mistake. You believe he didn't pay for this mistake and now it is your chance to make him pay. The device that Timothy is tracked to is my personal favorite. I call it the rack. Okay, the rack is literally a medieval torture device. 
This version of the rack puts that old one to shame. I love how Jigsaw introduces the names of his traps, where he's like, think of it as a Venus flytrap. Think of it as a reverse bear trap. I call this the rack. Oh my god, he's such a tool. He's a fucking tool. (laughs) He goes on to say, the human body is a miraculous creation. Ever wonder how far the arm can twist? This device is going to start twisting. There is a chance he might live, though, with your help. To your right is a box. At the back of the box is a key. At the back of the box. (laughs) (laughs) It's tied to the trigger of a shotgun. (laughs) (laughs) The question you have to ask yourself is this. Are you willing to take a bullet for the man who killed your son? Does do unto others as you would have them do unto you apply here, Jeff? Make your choice. Everything is religious. He literally quotes the Bible. A thing. Okay. Also, I'm really interested in like Father, Son, Jesus. Who's the Holy Spirit, Billy? (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, yeah, I could see it. Or I'm also thinking, you know, that story of Abraham, like, I think the story of Abraham is like God tells Abraham to kill his son to prove his loyalty, and he does. Yeah. That's fucking twisted shit. That's giving jigsaw shit right there. So the rack begins twisting. And also, like, it twists, like, each limb at a time. Yes. It's kind of like a clock, like Taylor Swift. So Jeff's like, I've wanted to kill him every day, and now maybe I am. So he's, like, living in his vengeance, and the judge is doing the least to, to do the most. Like, he's trying to stop the rack from twisting. He can't do it. Eventually, Jeff is examining the box as Timothy's feet are twisting 180 degrees in the wrong direction. I think this is the scene that really set me up to just have such a shit day after I saw this yeah, movie. This is hard to watch. Like, I won't say that you're supposed to have fun watching this. Like, this you're is not. supposed to be devastating. Jeff is trying to get the key without being shot. But again, like everything else in this film, he's very slow to do so. He does get the key, but it ends up still triggering the gun and the judge is shot in the face by accident. Great. Jeff tries to help as Timothy's head is spun right round, baby, right round. By Flo Rida. By Flo Rida. Is it that? Oh, yeah. Is it him? You turn my head right round, right round? Yeah, yeah, yeah that With means- uncredited Kesha in the background vocals? Oh, oh look. I'll tell you what about that song. Please tell me everything you know about that song. song. I love the song. That's what I know. And that's where I learned that Flo Rida is just Florida. Florida. <laughs> it's just Florida. And Timothy Young is dead. And this is another thing, too. So he gets the key. Does he just not know where to put it? Or is this another example of what was always going to be an unsolvable trap? Like, I don't understand why he's not able to, like, unlock Timothy out of there. I think it's an Xavier thing, where I think by the time he gets the key, he notices that the judge is shot. He's shocked. He goes running up to Timothy to try to unlock his head. But by that time, his head is already, like... In motion. Like, 120 degrees in the wrong direction. He's trying to stop the trap with his own hands, and he's just not doing what he needs to be doing. I do think he could have saved Timothy, but he was just, again, too slow to do it. Especially being that this trap was designed by John, as far as we concern it, I like to believe that Timothy had a chance, but Jeff was just slow to the draw. slow. And again, look, I'll say what I said before. The first time around, maybe you can give him a little bit of a pass, but this is the third time he has been faced with somebody that had to do with his son's death. Like, you think at this point he would be a little bit more settled in his morals to, like, move quicker. Do you know what I mean? I don't know how to explain it. I feel like in every other movie, it's hard to kind of get used to being in this game, but then the people adjust and like they pick up the pace and Jeff just doesn't. But it's also like the sliding scale of people that were involved. True. Gets more intense. Like, cause Danica, what did she really do? She didn't do anything when she could have done something, but she didn't kill him. Yeah. And same with a judge. Like he could have done more, but he didn't kill him. Timothy killed his son. Whether it was intentional, whether he was drunk, whether he wasn't. He caused the death of his son and he was the final confrontation for that reason. And I don't think, especially because what we see of Jeff in the scenes to come, like he just cannot let go. Yeah. And he wasn't ever going to let go. Meanwhile, Jigsaw is asking Lynn to tell him about her husband. And this is where Jigsaw goes off about the kind of matrimony where a husband can't look at the wife. The wife lays on her back for strangers in motel rooms and the kids are neglected. So like this is where some of this Puritan ideology is like, Low and freely. Get your fucking opinion out of Lynn's motherhood, please. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) She's like, I don't know what you think you know, but my marriage has survived more suffering than you could ever grasp and calls him a murderer. And he says, I despise murderers. 
But as they're having this conversation, Jigsaw is grasping Lynn's hand. Amanda enters to witness and John dismisses her and says she is not needed here. (sighs) You can't say that to Amanda. You cannot. (laughs) You certainly cannot. And this is where Amanda finds the note. Is this when she looks for the note that John told her about previously? Yes. Okay, so that note that John previously told her to look for in the desk drawer, she looks for. And we just see her kind of read the note, crumple it up, and then angrily grab a gun. So we don't know what the note says, but we know that Amanda is upset. And she returns to the room with John and Lynn. And despite John telling her to let Lynn go and to not shoot her, which she is now threatening to do... Amanda says no, and we can sense some mounting tension between this trio. John calls Amanda out for rigging Carrie and Troy's games, and also a flashback to Eric's trap, putting them in unwinnable circumstances. Amanda argues Eric learned nothing from his test. He was the same person as he was when he arrested me. He framed me and took me down. And we get a flashback to Eric attacking Amanda in the hallway after he pummeled his own foot, He brutalizes and beats the shit out of her, asking where his son is. Amanda eventually is able to get the upper hand by abusing his mutilated foot. And she goes to leave him for dead until he starts screaming, you're nothing, bitch. You're not Jigsaw. You hear me? You're nothing. You're nothing. This obviously strikes a chord with her, and she turns and advances on him, and that's the last we see. She admits that she is a murderer. She says, he took my life from me, so I returned the favor. Jigsaw says that she only left him for dead, but he cleaned up her mistakes, opening the door for fucking Donnie Wahlberg in future installments. Also, at this point, I forgot to say, Jigsaw told Amanda that she has to unlock Lynn's collar now because the test subject, Jeff, has made it through his third and final test. And that is when Amanda says no. So now we literally are seeing Lynn, like she's on the verge of being let go, but Amanda is like, absolutely not. Amanda says that he does what she does. He just tortures people and no one changes. It's all a lie. Nobody is reborn. It's all bullshit. And she's just a pawn in his stupid games. I don't mean anything to you. Fuck you. He's trying to argue you mean everything to me. Our fates are linked. Lynn is so important to your experience. She's like, no, fix me, motherfucker. I'm standing right here. Why is she so important to you? She's not important to me. She's nothing. He warns her this is her last chance. An intercut with this, Jeff is finding the last box, enters a lair with the key. Jigsaw is trying to plead with Amanda to have mercy, but Amanda eventually shoots Lynn. And Jigsaw says, you just destroyed four lives because you just murdered Jeff's wife. (gasps) So it turns out that that man that she was with in the beginning of the movie wasn't her husband. It was her affair boy who was saying he wants a divorce, but not their divorce, her divorce. So Mm. they could be together. (laughs) Oh my God. Jigsaw says, this was your test, your game. You were being tested. And we get this whole amazing flashback to every time Jigsaw was explaining the rules of the game, he was looking Amanda right in the face and not Lynn. Oof. And as Jeff enters the room, he shoots Amanda in the neck. Jigsaw continues explaining, I was testing you. I took you in. I selected you for the honor of carrying on my life's work, but you didn't. You didn't test anyone's will to live. You took away their only chance. Their games were unwinnable. Your subjects merely victims. In my desperation, I decided to give you one last chance, so I put everything in place. You didn't know that Jeff and Lynn were husband and wife. I had to keep that from you. I had to leave out the ruined marriage, the cheating wife, the vengeful husband, the neglected daughter, and I let you make your own choices. I wanted you to succeed, but you couldn't. Game over. And Amanda dies. And she dies right there on the floor. But then that leaves Jeff. Now dealing with his dying wife and a dying Jigsaw lying there in his bed. Jigsaw immediately jumps right into action because he's still testing Jeff. At first, Jeff tries to shoot Jigsaw, but there are no bullets left in the gun. Jigsaw tells Jeff to focus on saving his wife, but not to miscalculate. And he tells him, you can't take your wife out. One final test. You can kill me, aka like you can kill me, John, Jigsaw, or forgive and wait for that ambulance. But of course, we know about the fucking collar. If Jeff tries to take his wife out of there, she's dead. And if he kills Jigsaw, she's dead. Jeff then surprises me and says that he forgives John. But then he takes a saw from a nearby table and slits John's freaking throat with it, which kills him, 
levels his heart monitor, and sets off Lin's timer. As Jigsaw is laying there bleeding out and dying, he just presses play on a freaking recorder with a pre-recorded message that says, this was your test, you failed, your wife is going to die, and I have your daughter locked away in a location that nobody else knows except for me. He's like, if you want to win her back, you'll have to play a game. Jeff screams, Lynn dies, and that's the end of the movie. And look, when I tell you that I watched this and it ruined the rest of my night, like, I mean it. (laughs) I meant it. (laughs) I meant it. This was not fun for me, like the second one was. I don't know. It just felt pretty bad. Four makes three more fun. I will say that. Really? The context of four makes three more fun. Okay. I mean, as far as, like, plot twists and all of that fun stuff, like, yes, this was packed. And there was twist after twist after twist. And I appreciate what the movie put into keeping those twists from being, like, readily available. Like, I had some theories while I was watching this. Because at this point, I was like, I know there's going to be a twist. Mm -hmm. But I didn't fully get the twist at any point. So I appreciated that as far as a movie watching experience. But, oh, my God, it was so annoying. It just, nobody lived. And this is the second movie where... There are no winners. There are no winners. Well, Jeff's technically alive. Yeah, but he is not the guy I want to be seeing again. No. (laughs) But we'll be seeing more of everybody because Saw is infamous for its nonlinear storyline. So just because Amanda and John are both canonically dead does not mean that we're seeing the last of them. Because I will say in the next four to six movies, we (laughs) see glimpses of them because, again, the storyline is wacky. And you come to find out that so many things are happening simultaneously, and we are not done with them. So going into some post-plot stuff, again, the section on why everybody was tested. Troy, who was the nail bomb classroom scene guy in the beginning, supposedly he was a repeat offender in jail and somebody who was struggling with addiction. This was Amanda's trap, so it was unwinnable. We also have Detective Carrie. I wrote, she has a dead family and she's doing her job. Um, (laughs) This was also Amanda's trap. We come to find out in a flashback that Amanda was indeed the one that orchestrated Detective Carrie's trap. And part of that was because she was suspecting her and was on her trail and needed to kill her to silence the investigation into the Jigsaw murders. Jeff was being tested for neglecting his family in his search for vengeance. Lynn was being tested for stepping out on her marriage and having depression, lol. (laughs) I think it's so funny that, like, one of the chief sins against her was that she was medicated. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) It's so strange. she's actively addressing her mental health concerns. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Corbett is literally collateral. The little girl did nothing wrong. She's just being used as collateral for Jeff and Lynn. And Amanda for her unwinnable games and not following through on Jigsaw's teachings. So more on Amanda and John's relationship, because there's a lot to fucking unpack here. It is consistently described for John being a father figure to Amanda, even in her own words. In Saw 2, as we remember, she says, I found a father figure, a leader, a teacher. But uh, what's with the kisses on the neck and the caressing of the face when John is dying? Remember when Lynn says, don't touch him, and she is, like, nuzzled up in this man's neck and kissing his neck and, like, touching his face. I'm like, I don't embrace my father like that, but maybe people do. I don't know. Interesting. Also, her jealousy is off the fucking scale. Yeah, it's extreme. Also, the fact that Jigsaw says, this is the closest thing I've ever come to a connection. Sir, you are married. Mm, That is a really freaking good... Also, his choice of words, connection... Like, he doesn't say, like, air... Or protege, no, even. He says, closest I come to a connection to feeling understood. Mm. You have a wife. Like, yeah. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> she is significantly younger than you. So, like, and that's the thing. Like, I've read plenty of articles saying that their relationship is, like, so special and pure. And she was learning from him and all this kind of stuff. But I'm like, she's being groomed. No. No way. She's being groomed. I cannot imagine watching their relationship unfold and think, you know what? This is so pure. No. I don't know, because part of me thinks that Amanda's in love with John, but part of me also thinks that Amanda's deeply mentally ill and needed something to cling on to, and this was, like, her cult leader, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of herself wrapped up in her connection with John. So, like, who knows if she even knows how to navigate that? So a little bit more on Amanda. This comes from an article called I Want to Play a Game, How to See Saw by Jake Huntley, and this comes from the Amanda Young wiki. (laughs) I love How to See Saw. How does he saw? (laughs) 
So Jake Huntley writes of the complexity of Amanda's character in the Irish Journal of Gothic and Horror Studies, which mm, I gotta subscribe. I gotta subscribe. <laughs> I want it. Um, Huntley notes that although Amanda sets herself as notably different from the Jigsaw Killer, her attachment toward him and her desire to be like him are central to her character's state of mind, stating that the difficulty Amanda has in locating herself within the symbolic order is evident in the denouement of Saw Three. In a flashback scene, she commits a mercy killing of Adam and is then attacked by the maimed Eric Matthews, her face running with blood from their fight, reminiscent of the Jigsaw blood mask as he lies prone through Saw 1. Amanda walks away from the injured detective until he begins shouting after her that she's nothing and you're not Jigsaw. These taunts are what provokes a response. In the present of Saw 3, Amanda confronts Lynn and Jigsaw whilst brandishing a gun, angry and jealous over Jigsaw's apparent fondness for the physician, demanding to know why Lynn is so important to him, complaining that Lynn is nothing and worthless, and crying that she, Amanda, doesn't mean anything to Jigsaw. Nothing, not Jigsaw, and not important, become the signification closing in around Amanda, yet her demand Fix me, motherfucker, is a mimicking of Jigsaw's continual ambiguity of speech as it carries the implication of her past drug addiction before she knew Jigsaw. Even at such a critical moment, jostling a gun between the terrified Lynn and the terminal Jigsaw, Amanda's desire to identify with her mentor remains. Huntley further points out that the biggest dilemma that Amanda's character faced is that she lost her sense of self following the reverse bear trap in the first film. This characterized by her claim to have been reborn, symbolizing her neurotic desire to be someone else other than herself. The viewer is confronted with a character who grapples with trying to understand her own identity as she simultaneously attempts to emulate Jigsaw's characteristics while also setting herself apart as different from him. It is claimed by Huntley that this is the predicament that caused Amanda's gradual emotional breakdown, stating that what seems to be consistent thematically through the Saw films is that Jigsaw is a part for various players, an identity composed of pieces, and despite John's preparations and Amanda's willingness, it is a puzzle into which Amanda is simply unable to fit. Her addiction to drugs and her self-harming are helped via the games she plays by something that proves to be far more pernicious as Jigsaw comes to stand not as an object of her desire, but the cause. Far from achieving a sense of self, status, and stability through her role as Jigsaw's disciple, Amanda is not reborn and ultimately loses her sense of identity. Amanda is reduced to nothing, or as Matthew accurately and devastatingly phrases, not Jigsaw. Amanda Young grows out of her original place of signification and cannot occupy the space she desires, nor can she regress to fit herself back into the position of the signifier of Amanda. The inevitable pressure of this untenable negativity is what causes Amanda's disillusion. Unable to express her desire for Jigsaw, unable to be Jigsaw, and ultimately unable to be, she is squeezed out of any position within the symbolic order and caught in a horror of a hollow point of signification, which is the subtlest trap of all. So this person is arguing that she fell into a trap of just like non-identity. Pretty much. That's very interesting. But my question is, well, I guess my statement is that Jigsaw doesn't seem to know that he's doing that to her. No, he fully sees her as a rehabilitated winning example that his methods are successful. Mm -hmm. But she is hiding from him, obviously, like the self-harm aspect and the unwinnable games that his ideology doesn't work. And that is obviously seen in the final confrontation before she dies of like, you're no different. Like, you're a murderer. I'm a murderer. We're all fucking up. We're all torturing Mm. people. Like, no one gets fixed. You're lying to yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's like the ultimate betrayal that he dies on is like, no one is actually fixed or rehabilitated from my work. Because she was the only one to become a follower after that. Yeah. It's like Judas. The betrayal of Judas. Mm. Or like the fallen angel. The devil. I'm just thinking about religious juxtapositions now. Yeah, that's really compelling. And that's the thing too. Like I remember reading in other places that one of the better twists of Saw 2 specifically is that no one thought Amanda was capable of putting things into action because of how she was characterized before her vengeance or that her committedness to the bit, for lack of a better term. Like no one anticipated that because of how traumatized that she seemed in the first one. And arguably, you think that that trauma has radicalized her by the time she gets to this movie. 
But the denouement of this movie is literally her breaking down and being like, no, I'm still fucked up. Like, I'm still self-harming. I'm still doing all of these things. And you didn't fix me. If you're going to fix me, fix me now because you haven't fixed me yet. I've been trying so hard and I'm still not better. Damn, she's such a tragic character. She is. And that's why I wanted to talk about her because while she's a force and she's setting up all of these traps and she's badass and like, I don't really feel bad for Matthews. Okay. Yeah. Like, he's pretty non-sympathetic. But I do feel bad for Carrie. I do feel bad yeah. for, like, this no-name Troy dude or whatever. Like, she is putting herself in these situations where she's so focused on vengeance and emulating power that she didn't have when she was active in addiction or when she was a woman being taken advantage of. But her position with Jigsaw is she's still a younger, impressionable woman that attributes her survival to this man because if she's not on drugs, she needs to be, like, finding her purpose in something and her something is this fucking church of traps you know yeah wow what a phrase (sighs) what a way to end this but we have more to see of them not necessarily because we're covering four five six seven eight nine yet however shawnee smith and tobin bell are set to return in saw x which comes out at the end of september And the film's storyline takes place between the events of Saw and Saw 2 during the time when Amanda was active as Jigsaw's apprentice. Which means we get to see a little bit more about what that relationship looked like. How that grooming, for lack of a better term, occurred. How she developed this agency to go her own path. And maybe we're getting a little more context as to how she ended up the way she was in Saw 3. Because the whole idea of Saw X is that John travels outside the country to try to find a cure for his cancer and ends up being swindled by folks that claim to have done a brain surgery on him but have faked it Mm. and scammed him. And he ends up putting all of them in a trap. Oh my God. Amanda Young somehow plays a role in that. And that's all from the trailer. That's no spoilers or anything like that. But it could give a little bit more context as to everything that John went through in order to survive before he landed on the events of Saw 2 and 3. Hopefully I have an easier time sitting through the theater (laughs) at this showing that I did for Talk to Me. But something I do like about these Saw movies is that they really have so many like thriller elements to them. So hopefully I can watch this and sit through it. But keep up with us and where we go with this, maybe future installments of Saw Timber or... (laughs) I just thought of Saugest. <laughs> I feel like we could really make any month work. So if you want to hear more about the Saw movies, definitely let us know. We really want to base a lot of what we do off of what y'all want, because we appreciate those of you who listen, especially on a consistent basis. It means a lot to us. And we want to hear from you with what you want us to cover and things like that. So please definitely follow us on Instagram if you haven't already at The Horrors Podcast and or feel free to contact us at The Horrors Podcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye.